I'd like to ask you to turn to John 15, verse 9. When things like this happen, it sends chills up and down my spine. This is the text verse for tonight. Our text passage. John 15, starting with verse 9. I, I guess I should say, I guess I got kind of wrapped up in that. But it's good to be here. It's good to see each of you here serving the Lord in Harrisonburg. And it's good to be back. The text for this evening, and we won't spend a lot of time in Scripture, um, the text is John 15, verses 9 to 17. And Brother Wesley did an amazing job of leading up to this, this um, account. But as I was thinking about this message for, the, for this evening, it's called, Why Am I an Anabaptist? It's the name of it. The verses started running through my mind. If you are my friends, I can't, I'm not quoting it right, but um, I could look, it's here in the middle of this. Anyway, it talks about being friends of God and obeying Him. We're His friends if we obey. And I thought that's the essence of true Christianity is loving God and obeying Him. And that's the essence of true Anabaptism. The message would have looked a little different tonight if, if the title would have been what was given to Brother Mark's dad. Uh, was it your dad or uncle? Grandfather. Grandfather, I'm sorry. Your grandfather. If I, if I would have been answering the question, why am I a Mennonite, it would have been a little different focus. But why am I an Anabaptist? This subject is tr too big to treat in one evening. But I want to start here with this text. Let's read John 15, verses 9 to 17. Wesley's already talked about how we are drawing from the vine and then we bear fruit. What does that fruit look like? Verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth, I call ye not Servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. I want to go over these verses briefly and just give a little synopsis of what they're saying. Verse 9, God loves us. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. We see the love between Jesus and the Father. We receive that same kind of love. So God loves us. Verse 10, we abide in that love through obedience. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Literal obedience to the Word of God lived out in daily life 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, all our life. That's how we prove our love to God. And that's how we abide there. Verse 11, obedience brings joy. That my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Obedience brings fullness of joy. Verse 12, love one another. A brotherhood. Close brotherhood of believers. Verse 13, self-sacrifice. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's a high calling. Verse 14, again, obedience. If you do whatsoever I command you. Verse 15, all this brings a close relationship with God. We become, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Close, open relationship with our Heavenly Father. Verse 16, we are called to go, bear fruit. That you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. What a calling. And verse 17, again, these things I command you that ye love one another. Now, is that not a package of verses that, that shows what the Anabaptist church has tried to do and to model from the very beginning? That's the commands of Jesus. And that's what the Anabaptist goal has been ever since it came to be. The Anabaptist movement came to be. And we find throughout Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, love and obedience to God and love for each other. And anyone who claims to love God but does not obey Him is not a true follower of God. So what are Anabaptists? Anabaptists are followers of Christ who simply live out the teachings of the New Testament. Now, what sets them apart from other groups? And some of these questions are a little hard for even me to answer. Probably the clearest distinction today between Anabaptists and other groups would be the Anabaptist commitment to put into practice and physically live out the directives given in the New Testament. Literal obedience to God's Word is a defining difference. And though you all know this, probably, I'm, I don't know for sure, but from what I know, the practice of the headship veiling is almost completely done by Anabaptist groups. I mean, they're the, about the only group that does it. There's a lot of Anabaptist groups that don't uh, follow that scriptural principle. But that's almost, I may be wrong. There may be some other groups that do uh, that wouldn't call themselves Anabaptists or wouldn't be from Anabaptist background that would use wear the veiling, but mostly that is done within Anabaptist circles. So the literal obedience to God's word is the defining difference. Now, I'd like to start 
with a little bit of Anabaptist history, and probably some of you are much more historical scholars than I am. Um, this message actually helped me do a little digging. But I want to look at Anabaptist history for just a moment. When did the Anabaptist movement begin? So in the early 16th century, this would have been uh, 1520, well, I don't know exactly when it started. The reformers, there were several reformers started to do their work. You have Luther and Zwingli um, started to, there became a real unrest with the medieval church, if you want to call it that. It was a Roman Catholic church. And you have Luther nailing up his theses on the door of the church and all these things happening. And, and um, there was a lot of change happening in the, in the church of that time. Basically, you have the Lutheran, I mean, not just Lutheran, but there's several different ones, but the Protestant movement pulling against the Roman Catholic Church. But in, in that movement, not sort of parallel to that, you have the Anabaptist movement comes out of that. I'd like to talk about that a little more. So Luther had been pushing for a more biblical approach to salvation, among other things. And out of his teaching and some others, people were starting to get aware, become aware of the Roman Catholic Church really wasn't teaching truth. They were teaching some, actually some terrible fallacies. One of the things they taught was that um, the one priest, or I guess he was a priest, was teaching that if you wanted your loved ones to be saved, if you gave a certain amount of money um, to the church, they were automatically released from purgatory. They were trying to build a church, uh, uh, build a new church, or whatever they called it for the Roman Catholic, for their services. And so he needed money. And so that's what he preached. Terrible. Terrible. I mean, nothing scriptural about it. And so people, money was pouring in. People were getting their um, relatives released from purgatory. So people got, were unhappy with what was going on. And this is kind of coming to a head. And several men started speaking out for biblical teaching. And some of these men, and I'm doing a very condensed version here, but some of these men eventually got together in Zurich, Switzerland, Switzerland, and I'm not sure I'm saying that Zurich, I guess, Switzerland. They got together and were discussing this, and the, but the biggest part of their discussion was centered on infant baptism. There was much controversy over this subject, and it was sort of the discussion was sort of by the town council, if you want to say that, men from the town of Zurich. And some were one way, some were the other. It was a very heated evening of discussion, the way it sounds. And so they didn't really get anywhere. And um, so a couple of evenings later, this would have been January 21 of 1525. Thankfully, it was all well documented. A group of like-minded men, including, uh, including George Blairock, Blairock, and Connor Grebel got together to discuss this issue of infant baptism. 
And that evening as they discussed this, George finally stood up and asked Connor Greville to baptize him right on the spot. And because there was no ordained leadership, Connor agreed. He baptized him. And then George went on to baptize several other people that were in that same meeting. And even though some of the people through this time had rejected the infant baptism and had not let their children be baptized as infants, this was the first that anybody had said, infant baptism is not right. We have to be rebaptized as believers. And so that evening, because of those baptisms, that is considered the start of the Swiss Anabaptist movement. And the name Anabaptist actually means rebaptizer. Now, when these men took that position, it wasn't long that that position became a death sentence because they not only stood against the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant Luther and the and Zwingli and later on um, Calvin, John Calvin, were they all were against what the Anabaptists were teaching. They taught some of the same things, but to be rebaptized was a death sentence. And I had to think about that. It's one of the things that struck me. When you look at what those men committed to, what they were willing to die for, am I there? I'm afraid today, I'm looking at myself personally, I'm not sure I'd make a good early Anabaptist. I'm ashamed to say that. A lot of people died. A lot of people simply said, I don't care. This isn't right. I want to be baptized according to Scripture. I want to live my life according to Scripture. And it costs them their lives. Almost immediately. So now we have the Anabaptist movement. It's begun. These believers had got together and... Um, stated that they basically were stating they wanted to live life according to what Jesus taught, clearly. But two years later, severe persecution during this time, the leaders of the churches got together and came up with what we call the Schle uh, Schleheim Confession. I'm not sure how to say that exactly. Schleheim Confession of Faith. And this was what really set them apart. The seven articles of the Schleidheim Confession of Faith were believer's baptism, excommunication of sinners, believer's communion, separation from the world, pastors in the church, non-resistance, and no swearing of oaths. That's a very condensed version of what they wrote. And the reason these things were important was because this is not what was being taught in the in 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 the Roman Catholic Church. Believers' baptism, of course, was because they were just baptized as infants and didn't have a choice. And they were saying, no. We need to know. You need to know you're a believer and then commit to baptism, ask for baptism, and be baptized as a believer. Excommunication of sinners, the Roman Catholic Church really didn't 
deal with sin. They simply gave abstinence or you pay your dues and were kept on living in sin if you wanted to. Just paid for it. And they said, no. We need to... The church is given the responsibility in the New Testament to deal with sin in people's lives and to say, no, you can't live a life of sin. And if they continue, to then be excommunicated. And then there was believer's communion. Only those who were true born-again believers displaying it in a life, a changed life, could take part in communion in the blood and body of Jesus Christ in that commemoration. Of course, in the, in the where they come from, everybody received communion if you were a church member. And it was a desecration of what Jesus taught in the communion, in the ordinance of communion. Then there was separation from the world. Everybody was Roman Catholic, pretty much. That was just standard. It's just who you were. It was a state church, essentially, and everybody was part of it. And they were saying, wait a minute, true Christianity following Christ doesn't look like this. And that separation from the world took on a lot of different aspects in their lives. But basically, separating ourselves from the old sinful life. And then there was pastors in the church. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church has their hierarchy of priests and on up, and it was uh, basically a a government-run institution, or governmentally-run type institution. And they said, we need pastors, people that will teach the truth, read the Word, and share it with us. It looked different than where they come from. They took a biblical stance there. And then there was non-resistance. Still at a very defining point in true Anabaptists today of taking no harmful action against someone else, but loving them in return. Proved to be a extremely, one, effective way of evangelism for them, and number two, deathly way of evangelism. It cost so many lives, they would not fight back. They would not, they would simply pray for their persecutors. And it, I think that fact probably infuriated, if I might say so, a lot of their persecutors because they were dealing with somebody that was not... You can't do that on human terms. You can't do that out of a... Humanly speaking. And they were seeing something in these people that they didn't have. They didn't know how to deal with, deal with it except kill them. Because the only thing that they could... That would try to stamp out this thing that they didn't understand called non-resistance and love. And then there was the seventh um, thing, no swearing of oaths. And that was simply because, well, according to biblical teaching, but also to the Anabaptists, there was no, it was either truth or it was a lie. And as a believer, they were going to tell the truth. And so you didn't need to swear an oath. The Bible says don't. Let your yea be yea and your nay nay. So they just simply were going to tell the truth. We're not going to swear at oaths. So that was the basis of the Schleitheim Confession of Faith. Now, Michael Sattler was the one that authored or wrote the Schleitheim Confession. He was the one that penned it, evidently. And I think within 
weeks or months after he wrote it, he was excommun- I mean, executed. So you see, it was a, it was serious. We live in, we don't understand what our belief system a cost. Well, it cost Jesus, cost the new the the church, the New Testament church, and cost our Anabaptist forefathers. It has always in history cost an enormous amount for believers to follow Christ. We live in in a time that is almost unfortunate for us because we don't face the pressures that they do, and so we become wimpy Christians, if you want to say it that way. We're very fortunate to live this time. We've lived very easy lives because of because we don't face that kind of persecution, but I'm not sure it's good for our faith. So they committed to a life different than the people around them, no matter the cost. Now, they did owe a lot to Luther and to the Protestant reformers. The Protestant reformers were the ones that sort of started this movement of salvation, um, salvation through personal faith in Christ alone, by grace, as revealed in Scripture. That's what Luther taught. And that prepared the way for what the Anabaptists picked up on and carried on. On many other crucial issues, the Anabaptists differed as much from Luther as Luther did from the Roman Catholic Church. We do well to remember some historical realities. And we're let we're we can't make judgments today on what we do and what we accept based on that then. But the Protestant movement was deadly to Anabaptists. In fact, of the twenty to forty thousand Anabaptists that were martyred in the early decades, likely more were massacred by Protestants than by Catholics. That was astounding to me. That's something I did not know. And I want to look at some differences between the Anabaptists, between where Anabaptist beginnings were and where the Reformers, the Protestant movement was. Luther and Calvin and their associates wanted a reformation of the medieval church. They wanted to change how the church functioned. The Anabaptists wanted restoration of the New Testament church. The Reformers looked to the state to defend the establishment of an official religion. They wanted an official religion that looked a little bit like the Bible. And they wanted the state to enforce it. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, sought no government endorsement. Government has nothing to do with religion. They're two separate entities. The Reformers asserted that all people in the realm should conform to the official state religion. And the Anabaptists, however, proclaimed religious and civil liberty for all. The Reformers retained much of the Catholic church-state fusion of that day. And the Anabaptists, who saw themselves as strangers and pilgrims in this world, rejected any fusion of faith and citizenship. The church of which they testified and for which they died was based on Jesus Christ alone 
and knew no state boundaries. And that challenges me today even. We kind of get localized in our church, in our thinking of the church. But when you realize that our brothers and sisters in Ukraine that are dying are no different than you and I, they're brothers and sisters in the Lord, that overarching part of the body of Christ, wow, that's amazing. The Reformers specifically endorsed military slaughter by Christian soldiers. And the Anabaptists, on the other hand, expressed love for their persecutors and prayed for them. The Reformers fragmented, fragmented and compartmentalized Christian living. You do this in this situation and this in this situation. Luther wrote, As a Christian, man has to suffer everything and not resist anybody. But as a member of the state, that same man has to fight with joy as long as he lives. The Anabaptists rejected such ethical dualism, as it's called. In other words, you're one thing over here and you're another thing over here. We are a servant of Jesus Christ first and foremost, no matter the situation. So who are the Anabaptists today? That was the beginnings of the Anabaptist movement and how they differed from the Protestant movement of that day and what they went through. Very brief synopsis. But who are the Anabaptists today? And that's why I say Anabaptist looks a little different than if I'd have been saying, why am I a Mennonite? Anabaptist is a very broad brush today. As you can see, Anabaptists were not part of the great Protestant Reformation but they established a third option. You had the Roman Catholic Church, you ended up with Protestants, and then you had the Anabaptists. They upheld a very different and distinct set of values. Today, of course, many other groups have accepted much of what Anabaptists rediscovered, if you want to call it that. And the differences between Protestantism and Anabaptism have decreased. Most Protestant churches don't do infant baptism anymore largely because the Anabaptists have, of their push for um, adult um, believers' baptism. But the total set of Anabaptist beliefs and practices remains distinctive. The Anabaptists are still different. Even though the Anabaptists have often not practiced and preached it consistently, Anabaptism is still one of the most complete applications of New Testament doctrines, principles, and early church example. We do well to call ourselves back to the, the basics, even as we acknowledge that Anabaptists do not possess a corner on the truth. I like to reassert that. Anabaptists don't possess a corner on the truth. Clearly, on certain emphasis, others can teach us much. Just because we're Anabaptists don't mean we have it all right. But overall, Anabaptist teachings embody true biblical teaching as I understand it better than anything else I, can, I, I know of. I thought about coming up here this evening and saying, 
answering the question, why am I an Anabaptist by, I was born one and sit down. And we could say that because a lot of us, that's the truth. Literally, we are in an Anabaptist because that's where we were born. But that's not an excuse. We need to know why we are who we are. Not necessarily why we're an Anabaptist, but why we believe what we believe. I found something as I was studying. It's called the 12 Principles of Anabaptism. And this is, these principles, and though I've edited them and changed them some, these principles are more a brush painting the Anabaptist church overall today. It looks very different in different societies, um, different applications. Basic teachings are the same. And these are 12 principles, and there's, there's more. These are uh, principles that the Anabaptist body, of, the greater Anabaptist body of believers would uphold to. We find, I look at ourselves, us as a conservative Mennonite church, as sort of middle-of-the-road Anabaptists. You have very conservative um, Anabaptists, much, you know, as conservative, more conservative than what we would think of as Amish yet. Um, there's horse and buggy, there's us, and it, there's, we're sort of middle of the road calling ourselves conservative Anabaptists. But Anabaptism covers much more than just Mennonite or Amish or Old Order. There's brethren, there's, I should have made a list, but I decided I wouldn't go there this evening. There's a lot of different Anabaptist churches. So I want to look at these 12 principles, and they give us an overarching view of what Anabaptists stand for. Number one, a high view of the Bible. The Bible is our roadmap. It is God's love letter to us. It is God's word to us. And the Holy Spirit does not contradict the Bible. Now, we don't worship the Bible itself. And this is a word I'd never heard of before. This, because We don't worship the Bible itself because that would be bibliolatry. We can. People can. I know people that know the Bible better than I do that don't know God. That's bibliolatry. Anabaptists accept the Scripture as the authoritative Word of God and through the Holy Spirit, the infallible guide to lead men to faith in Christ and to guide them in the life of Christian discipleship. Anabaptists insist that Christians must always be guided by the Word, which is to be collectively discerned and by the Spirit. I thought that was interesting. What the Word says is collectively discerned. We are not an island in and of ourselves. We are a body of believers. Yes, the words speak to us individually, but it also we, we discern the Word through collective uh, study and listening to the body. Number two, emphasis on the New Testament. Since Christ is God's supreme revelation, Anabaptists make a clear functional distinction between the equally inspired Old and New Testaments. We see an Old and New Covenant. We read the Old, the Old Testament from the perspective of the New and see the New as the fulfillment of the Old. And where the two defer, the New is what we go by. 
Thus, Anabaptist ethics are derived primarily from the New Testament. Number three, emphasis on Jesus as central to all else. And this is something I have over and over been very thankful for in my upbringing. Focus on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Anabaptists derive their understanding of who Christ is directly from the Word and emphasize a deep commitment to take Jesus seriously in all of life. Such a view runs counter to notions that the commands of Jesus are too difficult for ordinary believers. And as you look at a lot of churches around you, you will see that. Jesus didn't really mean what he was saying. And I think particularly on the subject of divorce and remarriage. Jesus didn't, I mean, he, he didn't really mean that. Anabaptists take Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount as literal and meant to be lived out by his followers. That in and of itself sets the Anabaptist church apart from a vast majority of so-called Christians. The ne- number four, the necessity of a believer's church. Anabaptists believe that Christian conversion while not necessarily sudden and traumatic, always involves a conscious decision. Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Believing that an infant can have no conscious, intelligent faith in Christ, Anabaptists baptize only those who have come to a personal, living faith. Voluntary baptism, together with a commitment to walk in full newness of life and to strive for purity in the church, constitutes the basis of church membership. The importance of a body of believers, the church, and being part of that body. No one is an island. We are a part of the body of Christ. The church is very important in helping us be who we should be. We believe in in, uh, believer's baptism and a walk of life that proves who we are before someone is baptized. Number five, the importance of discipleship. Becoming a Christian involves not only belief in Christ, but also discipleship. Discipleship. Faith is expressed in holy living. In Christ, salvation and ethics come together. What you say you do and what you actually do have to match. Not only are we to be saved through Christ, but we're also to follow Him daily in obedient living. Thus, for example, Anabaptists from the beginning renounced the oath. They determined to speak the truth, no matter what. Anabaptists continue to teach that salvation makes us followers of Jesus Christ and that He is the model for the way we are to live. Focus on who Jesus is and obedience to Him. Number six, insistence on a church without classes or divisions. The church, the body of Christ, has only one hit. While acknowledging functional diversity, Anabaptist believers set aside all racial, ethnic, and class distinctions because we are all one in the unity and equality of the Bible of the body. I'm sorry. No matter who we are, we are equal at the foot of the cross. We could, I'll leave that one there. Believe, number seven, belief in the church as a covenant community. 
you know, some of these things we grow up, it's just the way we are. We don't even think about the difference. But to others looking on, it's something that's hard to imagine. The way we do uh, worship, mutual aid, mutual accountability, all these things characterize an Anabaptist community. Sometimes sharing of goods. Sometimes I think we, I know we don't do this as much as the New Testament church. Part of that is because of the land of wealth that we live in. An individualistic, self-centered Anabaptism is a contradiction in terms. And I thought that was very interesting because one of the things that I've heard over and over the last several years is people concerned about individualism. Just leave me alone. I'm, I'll follow the Lord myself. I don't want accountability. I don't want um, others speaking into my life. I'll just follow the Lord by myself. That's not Anabaptist teaching at all. We're part of a body of believers part of a covenant community. Number eight, separation from the world. Community of the transformed belongs to the kingdom of God. It functions in the world, but it's radically separate from the world. The faithful pilgrim church sees the sinful world as an alien environment with thoroughly different ethics and goals. This principle includes separation of church and state. Therefore, Anabaptists reject all forms of civil religion, be it the traditional corpus Christianum, or more recently developed forms of Christian nationalism. And that Christian nationalism probably affects us a little more than we want to that we want to admit. And we saw it during um, the Trump administration when you saw Amish buggies flying American flags pushing for voting for Trump. That's Christian nationalism. We have got to as Christians help control our nation. There's a fallacy in what I just said. It's not our nation. But when we step out of the realm of the biblical teaching of two kingdoms, if we don't adopt that teaching, we automatically have to go to Christian nationalism. Most of the more conservative groups, including us conservative Mennonites, would believe that separation from the world also means that we should have no involvement in government at all, including voting. Jesus left us a very clear example by having all power, but never in any way using that power to affect change in the governance of the country, even though that is exactly what the Jews were expecting the Messiah to do. When I thought, when I realized that point, it helped me realize that I don't need to vote. That's not my calling. Jesus didn't. We're followers of Him. We don't see the New Testament church. We don't see Christ, even though they could have had huge political change. They could have affected huge political change. Christ for sure could have. He did nothing to change the political scene. 
New Testament church did, did nothing to change. Well, I guess Paul tried to win. Uh, which one? Um, anyway. Yeah. Uh, yes, King Agrippa. He almost won him to Christ. And if that wouldn't have changed something um, politically, but that's the only thing we see of changing them through trying to bring them to the Lord. The New Testament church didn't try to affect change. Why should we? Christian nationalism is a danger to the Anabaptist church. If we adopt Christian nationalism, we will lose our identity as an Anabaptist community. Number nine, the church is a visible counterculture. As a united fellowship of believers, every Anabaptist congregation models an alternate community. You're doing it here in Harrisonburg. Such a covenant community functions, functions, functions excuse me, as an authentic counterculture. Each church represents the local body of Christ and as such becomes the hands and feet of Jesus to the local community. If you think about Christ and what He taught, it is cross-cultural. No matter the, the culture, no matter where you take Christ in the world, His teachings are counter to that culture. There is no culture that exactly aligns itself with Christ in natural humanity. We as a body of believers are endeavoring to create a culture within us that does align itself perfectly with Christ. We are demonstrating to the world what living for Christ is like. Number 10, belief that the gospel includes a commitment to the way of peace modeled by the Prince of Peace. We call it non-resistance. Here, Anabaptists differ from many other Christians. Anabaptists believe that the peace position is not optional. It's not marginal and related mainly to the military. On the basis of Scripture, Anabaptists renounce violence in human relationships. We see peace and reconciliation or the way of love as being at the heart of the Christian gospel. God gave His followers this ethic not as a point to ponder, but as a command to obey. It was costly for Jesus, and it may also be costly for His followers. The way of peace is a way of life. And we would add to that the way of love. It's not just peace, it's loving in return. Commitment to, to servanthood, number 11. Just as Christ came to be a servant to all, so Christians should also serve one another and others in the name of Christ. Thus, separation from a sinful world is balanced by a witness of practical assistance to a needy and hurting society. So, as you see some wings of the Anabaptist movement, take Hutterites, um, some of the colony Mennonites, they kind of form this group off by themselves. It doesn't really associate much with the, national, with the world around them. We, as our group, would feel like that's not really what Christ called us to. Christ called us to be a witness in the community, to mingle and to draw them out of that community into a life of following Christ. I think that also happens in those communities. But our witness to the world, that separation of who we are, looking different, being different, living different, living a life separate from them is balanced by then reaching back into their lives and helping through acts of love and service to a hurting society. 
Number 12, insistence on the church as a missionary church. Anabaptists believe that Christ has commissioned the church to go into all the world and all of society and to make disciples of all people, baptizing them and teaching them to observe His commandments. The evangelistic imperative is given, this evangelistic imperative is given to all believers. Not just leadership, not just missionaries, so, so to speak. We're all called to win the world for Christ. These principles constitute the essence of Anabaptism, these 12 principles we talked about. While you might find each of these principles other places, other churches, upholding some of these principles, the combination of all 12 constitutes the uniqueness of the Anabaptist movement, group. The Protestant Reformation had not gone far enough. The early Anabaptists, while diverse and far from perfect, committed themselves to nothing less than the restoration of the New Testament church. We had the privilege of reemphasizing these 12 principles in word and deed here and now. The title of this message is, Why Am I an Anabaptist? As I studied for this message, I found, found myself pondering, am I truly an Anabaptist at heart? To be an Anabaptist is to live a life of selfless surrender to Christ and service to others, no matter the cost. And I believe that Anabaptist theology, as I understand it, is correct, doctrinally, according to Scripture. However, I also realize that we are people. And even born-again believers don't get everything in life right. Because of this, and even though I see imperfections in the local body of believers, the teachings and beliefs that we hold dear are the teachings that I want to pass on to the future generations. I'll be frankly honest, I've not always felt the way I do now. There's two things that I specifically struggle with growing up that are taught in our circles and our basic Anabaptist beliefs. One is non-resistance, and one is separation of church and state. In other words, our abstaining from voting. I practice non-resistance. I remember um, having that point pushed by a young man when I was Probably 14 years old, we went to a little mission church, and this one young man there wanted, really, really, really wanted me to, wanted to push me to the point that I would fight back, and I didn't. So those, those teachings, though I wasn't much of a very mature Christian at that point, those teachings were at work. And we remained good friends, even though he tried me. Non-resistance works. But as I've studied the Bible... And I've lived a few more years. And as I've watched what's happening in the world around us, those two applications, non-resistance and separation of church and state, are essential to a believer. The church has been called to win the world for Christ, not change the world for Christ. And we're called to win them through sacrifice, love, and service. We cannot get entangled with the affairs of this world. We have a higher calling. 
We are part of a different kingdom. Our goals and motives are controlled by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are we truly Anabaptists at heart? Am I, are you willing, as our Anabaptist forefathers were, to die for our faith? And I don't say that to die for what we teach. Are we willing to die for the teachings of Jesus Christ? Am I an, am I an Anabaptist at heart? Are you? I hope so.